Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, October 5th, we're studying Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. In today's text, the author of Hebrews extols Jesus as the one who tasted death for us and thereby destroyed the devil. Because Jesus has shared in our flesh and blood, he is our merciful high priest. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be on as always. Get to talk about the letter, the sermon to the Hebrews today. Pastor Heidi, what should we know about this part of the scriptures as we prepare to look at chapter 2 today? Well, I think Hebrews is a, is a great book. I know I say that pretty much about every book, but... That's um, good. You Hebrews, should say that. <laughs> Hebrews is a great book because in this... I mean, throughout the, the whole the whole book here, we are talking about uh, the superiority of Christ. We're talking about uh, what he has done for us. We are talking about you know, all of these wonderful ways in which Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So I think, you know, when we talk about what is going on here, even in this chapter, in this early in the book, we are looking at Christ and all that he has done and talking about um, the, the greatness of what he has done as well. In terms of some of that context, we've been especially considering the way that Jesus is greater than the angels. How does that carry into the text we've got for today? Well, the, it's actually still kind of expanding on that whole point. Um, we're going to be he, the the writer is going to be talking about what's going on with you know the, the being superior to the angels, and also then kind of explaining why he is superior, uh, the things that he has done and the ways that he has fulfilled the scriptures as a way of showing that he is greater than all of these things that the, the hearers would have trusted in, right? I mean, th- and then eventually he goes on to talk about being greater than Moses and all those other things, greater than the, the covenant which is passing away. But at this point, again, he's really emphasizing that superiority to the angels and kind of drawing that whole part to a close, right? Right, right. He's And, and in the previous section, he had some exhortation paying closer attention to that which we've heard so that we don't drift away from it. This text probably turns a little bit more to exposition of these Old Testament texts rather than exhortation and and explaining what they are and and why that's important, what the comfort is for those who are reading or or hearing this epistle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I do you want to talk about anything else with... uh... You know, I don't the, know, Pastor uh, Heidi. Do you want to do you want to give your opinion as to who the author is? You just seem like the kind of guy that's got an opinion on that. Well, I mean, I think it's Paul, but <laughs> so okay. I I, I kind of knew that. 
But I'm I'm curious because I I think and of course this is only the fourth episode now on this show I I would I would imagine that the majority of the guests that get to talk about Hebrews with me are not going to think it's Paul so I am I am curious if and I don't want to spend the whole time on this but I'm curious as to some of the reasons you do think it's Paul. Well, I think it's Paul partly because I think that's why Hebrews was accepted into the canon in the first place because it was written by an apostle or somebody you know closely connected in this case. Um, and so that you have that. I also think that especially when you get towards the end of the letter and the way that the, the book of Hebrews closes, it sounds very much like Paul's epistles. And so even though it doesn't say Paul specifically uh, within, you know, like the, especially in the first part, it doesn't start the way that Paul normally does. I don't think that that is decisively against it being Paul. I think it's just, that's just the way that this book was written. And if nothing else, I mean, if you want to think of it as a sermon, maybe someone recorded a sermon of Paul, and it would be very odd for him to say, I, Paul, at the beginning of his own speech, you know, his own sermon. So that's kind of my thoughts as to why I think it's Paul. Fair enough, fair enough. And again, that's one of those things where none of our guests, and, and not the host either, are going to be able to nail that one down for anybody. We, we don't know for certain who the author is. Sure. He does not name himself. And as, as Dr. Kleining said in the first episode of this series, that's part of the point, is that the author wants you to hear God speaking, and it's not as much about which particular man he was speaking through. He wants you to hear that God is speaking, and certainly that continues into today's text. Any more introductory comments, Pastor Heidi? I was just going to say also, if it is indeed Paul, um, maybe he has a reason for omitting his name, especially considering his audience, you know, speaking to the Hebrews, saying that, you know, this is why it's all superior to everything that you are trying to put your hope in. What you need to do is put it into Jesus. He doesn't want to, um, I don't want to say poison the well beforehand kind of a thing. Sure. But again, everything you said is, is, is correct. God be praised. <laughs> God be praised. That's right. All right, so we got Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18 for our text today. Here it is. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the worlds to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, 
but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's our text, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Pastor Heidi, help us into verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Right. So, I mean, the the whole initial part of Hebrews up to this point has been talking about the angels and Christ being superior to the angels. And so he's really just driving home the point here again. The angels are not the ones to whom, you know, God has subjected all things. As important as they are, as as great as they are, they are still his servants, and they are not the ones who have been set over the world, whereas Christ has been set over all things. Everything is being put under his subjection. And to prove his point here, he actually goes on to quote, uh, for the first time in this in this reading at least, uh, from Psalm 8. And then that's going to be kind of his main focus for the next few verses, is kind of explaining what that means and how that applies to Jesus. So before we take a look at that Old Testament citation, he, he says in verse 5 that it was that God subjected the world to come, particularly to Christ. Is there a, is there a significance to the fact that he, he especially mentions that it's the world to come that's been subjected to Christ? Well, I think he's going to make the point elsewhere, and I'm going to have to pull a Hebrewism here and say, test, you know, say somewhere else. I'm not really sure about exactly where. Um, that everything that we see right now is not yet fully, well, I mean, this is in verse 8, actually, where am I thinking? Is not yet fully in subjection to him. In other words, the world is still coming under his, under his subjection, is still in the process of being put under his feet. Whereas what we're looking at is when that rule, that kingdom, will be complete, and in, in that sense, he will say the world will be subjected to him. Hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's that thought is present even within this text, where he, he will say in a moment that we don't see this right now, but we do see right. Jesus, and we do know that this is true, even though we don't see it with our, our natural eyes right now. So I think that thought is, is certainly present within this text. Now, you, you mentioned, as, as you were uh, attempting to quote from the Scriptures, it's, it's written somewhere, and, and that's always <laughs> struck me about the author to the Hebrews here, that he, he speaks that way. So I guess it's, it's okay if in, in your pastor's sermon he doesn't necessarily know precisely where the reference is, or for you, dear Christian, if you don't always know precisely where the reference is, but you know what the text says— you, you are in good company, it seems. Exactly. Well, I mean, and the whole, the whole chapter and verse thing is a relatively recent invention in the history of the Bible. So, I mean, when the book of Hebrews would have been written, I don't even think the, the Psalms themselves were numbered. So he just kind of had to go, it's written somewhere. I don't remember exactly where, but you could find it. I mean, it's, it's there. <laughs> well, it, and Dr. Kleinig so. even made the, the point when I, when I spoke with him, that the, the author of this letter, this sermon, has a way of, of quoting from the Old Testament that's unique from other New Testament writers. Rather than speaking about it is written, say, by the prophet Isaiah, the writer of Hebrews consistently, fairly consistently, uses something like, it is said, or he says, even. So that, it, again, it's, it's less about where it's written, but the fact that God is the one who has spoken it, 
in the past and now continues to speak it into the future. So the fact that he doesn't have the exact reference fits in nicely with that, the way that he works throughout this letter. Well, and, and on top of that, too, his hearers would have been intimately familiar with all of this. He doesn't need to say it's written in the book of Psalms. He doesn't need to say it's written in Deuteronomy or Isaiah or whatever, because he can just say this, and they'll automatically go, okay, that's that's what you're talking about. I know I know this kind of thing. They they are a lot more familiar with the Bible than we are. <laughs> so, so he's he can not get away pulling one it. over on them here. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but you have you have told us that the somewhere where it is testified is in Psalm 8. So mm-hmm. take us into the words that he brings up from Psalm 8, and any necessary context from that psalm that helps us to see what he's doing with this quotation. Well, Psalm 8 is, is a beautiful psalm, and talking about uh, the glory of God, his name being majestic over all the earth, And the focus that Psalm 8 has is talking about uh, the greatness of God also being seen in his mercy toward man, right? You know, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You've made him this great thing and set all of these things over him. And in that sense, you know, even though he seems so little, even though he seems so insignificant, you have made so much of him. And that also speaks to the glory of God as well. Um... But, it, but it's interesting here because the, in Hebrews, that man, the son of man, is taken very specifically to refer to Christ. And uh, I, I should mention here that if you want to compare this, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is citing, is quoting from the Septuagint, from the Greek Old Testament, which is why he says a little, uh, for a little while lower than the angels. But if you go back to uh, the the Hebrew Old Testament, which is translated, will say lower than the heavenly beings or something like that. Um, and that's and that I don't know if that makes a difference, but if somebody gets confused as to why the wording is different, that's that's what is happening here. Sure, and there's even maybe a it, within the the text as it's given in the ESV, which is what I'm looking at right now mm-hmm. in Psalm eight verse five. It's the language that you described, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Mm-hmm. He also takes not only just the the specifying the angels for heavenly beings, but the the little is not a it's not a up above or below, but it's rather a little in terms of time, and right. he makes use of that as well. Right, right, and then so, but the point in Hebrews is that Christ, being man, being the Son of Man, being mindful of Him. You have done all of these things for him. And so he, he takes what originally referred to a more kind of general in my in, thing, in my opinion, and uses it specifically to talk about Jesus. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the one who, you know, he is Israel. He is the, the people of God rolled up into one. I mean, we can do this with him. But it is, we do have to understand, you know, what is going on here when he quotes from Psalm 8. That's what, I mean, that's what he's doing, so. Right, right, yeah, and that's an important thing to see, so that when you turn to Psalm 8, you're not terribly confused, or not as confused as to how the writer of Hebrews is bringing it up here. Mm -hmm. So, with the way that he applies this to Jesus, then, and this is looking at Hebrews 2, 7, and 8, Mm -hmm. you made him, so God made the Son, God made Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It sounds like that the writer of Hebrews is using this then to speak about Jesus, 
I guess from his incarnation all the way through his ascension is what it sounds like to me. Yes. So the, the little while lower would be his humiliation, the time when he became man, but before he rose from the grave. But the being crowned with glory and honor then would be his exaltation, everything after he rises and, like you said, ascends into heaven, where he sits down at the right hand of the Father. So what we see then in the way that you know, Solomon is being used here is kind of the whole overview of what has happened to Christ. He is, he is seeing kind of everything that Jesus has done in these few verses, which really, again, emphasizes the, the superiority of Christ. It shows that he is far greater than the angels because even though he was made lower than them for a while, he is now set over everything. I mean, everything. I mean, the angels can't claim that. They can't be, they're not in dominion over everything but Jesus is. Yeah, so. that's right. That's right. And, and that has that has been announced and declared and, and brought to fruition in the ascension of our Lord. So this is one of those key texts, just to, to mention this at least briefly, and if you'd like to say more, you're welcome to it, Pastor Heidi, but this is one of those places where the ascension of Jesus is a key event that he works for our salvation that sometimes I think we've neglected recently, but we would do well to consider all the more that Jesus is, in fact, ascended is a pretty key point, I think, for this part of Hebrews. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and Christ's ascension is a is a cornerstone of our faith, of our hope, too. You know, that the one who has been uh, raised from the dead is not only living, he has ascended, he has gone up, he is now the king. I mean, the, the whole fact that Jesus is control of, in, in control of all things revolves around his sitting at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, we really should emphasize it more than we do sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you get to 40 days after Easter, unless the Lord returns before that in 2024, make sure that you find yourself to a divine service on Ascension Day so that you can receive the Ascended Lord in his gifts for you. I think that would be very fitting and much in conjunction with what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. So we have that quotation from Psalm 8 into the middle of verse 8 here in chapter 2, and then the writer begins to expound upon it a little bit more. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. How does that kind of wrap up what he said about Psalm 8 thus far? Well, it's the, this idea of him being crowned with glory and honor. In fact, this is what he's going to expand on in verse 9 you know, saying that because he suffered and because he has been glorified, that's why, you know, he has been crowned with this glory and honor, and he has been given all of these things. So he's just kind of kind of unpacking what he's just said by quoting Psalm 8 and showing how it would actually apply to Jesus in this case. So I guess you could see verses 8 and 9 as just kind of being what was just said, but kind of showing more explicitly how it refers to Jesus. Right, and, and what it then also means for the Christians who are receiving this letter, hearing this sermon, mm -hmm. because as, as verse 8 then continues, the writer says, well, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. So everything's been put, put in subjection, but we don't see that yet. And then in the verse 9, he's going to say, but we do see, we do see something. We see him, in fact. So let's talk about this contrast, talk about the first part, what we don't see and what he means by that. Well, the, what we don't see is, base, is because basically of our experience in the world. Um, Christ is in subject, in, I mean, Christ has everything under his feet, 
But in some extent, like I said earlier, it is still expanding. He is still, the world still needs to be fully brought into subjection because there are so many that fight against him. There are so many that uh, cause suffering for us as Christians. And the fact that we have to suffer would make us think that, well, maybe this kingdom isn't as in control of everything as we thought it was. You know, our experience of our day-to-day lives, you know, living as Christians, living, you know, walking after Christ, would seem to go against what is being said here. I mean, it seems to go against the, the, the kingship of Christ. But that's not true, because we do see Jesus, and we do see that he is in control, and we do walk by faith through these things, so that even if we must suffer, we know that we are suffering with him. Right? So it well, so okay, here's where and and whoever wrote this, but Paul, Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter five, we walk by faith, mm-hmm. not by sight. Mm-hmm. So I think that I mean this is what the writer of Hebrews is is he's saying in a little bit longer words what Paul says there. Uh, talk about that, the necessity of Christians living, walking by faith rather than by sight. Yeah, Paul does say it a little longer here, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I, I see what you did there. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's this whole idea that if we are walking by sight, if we're walking by what we see, by what we experience, and think that that is the all in all, that that is just that is what it means to be a Christian, we would seem to have a pretty miserable existence. I mean, even even Paul in another place will say, you know, if if we have if Christ is not risen from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied, right? It it seems like a a very difficult thing to be a Christian, and if we are walking purely by what we see, who would ever want to be a Christian in that sense? But we don't walk by what we see. We walk by faith because we know what is the truth. We know that Christ is in control. We know that God works all things for good. We know that even if we suffer, we are being conformed to the image of the Son, we recognize that what we don't see right now is what will be. And that's what he means that we walk by faith. We are walking towards what we know is going to be and what we know is ours in Christ, even if to the eyes of our flesh, we can't see it right now. Yeah. So there's there's two types of sight for the Christian. One is the natural sight, mm-hmm. which is what Hebrews 2 verse 8 is talking about, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's sight according to our eyes that we, we have, the according to our flesh. But then verse 9, we do see, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So there's the, the sight of faith by which we walk, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, talk about how the writer of Hebrews elucidates that more in verse 9 of this text. Can you ask the question again? Sorry. Well, how does... So the idea of, of seeing by faith, so walking mm-hmm. by faith, this seeing Jesus in verse 9, I mean, that's, you know, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we do see Jesus... That's the, the nice, easy summary. But what does he say about particularly seeing Jesus that we need to pay attention to? Well, we see Jesus because, I mean, he, we see Jesus in our suffering. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of his point here, that uh, Christ was crowned with glory through death. And, uh, I mean, obviously through his resurrection, too. But his glory comes because he died, because he tasted death for everyone. And so when we suffer with him, 
we are seeing Jesus in that sense. When we suffer as Christians, we are seeing him. Um, I mean, yes, of course, we also see him in the word. We also see him in all the things that he does for us. But I mean, one of the main ideas that you'll see unpacked again and again and again in the book of Hebrews is this idea of suffering, suffering as a Christian, suffering the things of this world, and that we should remain steadfast even in the midst of that suffering because we have something far greater waiting for us. So yeah, I mean, this, this seeing Jesus by faith also includes suffering with him. So, and, and to think about, again, as we were talking about the ascension of Jesus then, as we think about Jesus seated at God's right hand, the one who rules and reigns over all things, the one who has everything in subjection to him, even though we don't see that, the thing that we need to see about Jesus in his ascension is that he remains the one who is crucified for our sins. This is the so it's not just hey Jesus is king he's ruling over everything and that's really great because he's got all this power, but even more than that it's Jesus is reigning over everything as the one who suffered for you, and so as you are suffering now and it may look to you like not everything is in subject to him, take a look at Jesus who suffered for you, mm-hmm. know that he's the ascended one, and that gives you hope comfort endurance in the midst of your own suffering. Right. I think maybe a a great way to show this, too, actually comes from the book of Revelation, um, when Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. uh, I believe, what is that, chapter 4, if I'm correct? 4 or 5, yeah, maybe both. uh, And he's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who has conquered, but then when John turns around to see him, what he sees is not a lion, but a lamb, and a lamb specifically as one who has been slain. And so I think that that contrast between who Jesus is, because he is still a lion. I mean, we don't want to deny that at all. But the way he shows his lionness, if I can use a weird word like that, is the fact that he is a lamb, that he is the one who has been slain. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the way that uh, the, the phrase that comes to my mind is from Charles Wesley's hymn, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, which is mm-hmm. in, in Lutheran service book is an Advent hymn, but you could also sing it around the end times, the end of the church year. Those things kind of overlap. But he, he talks about how with, this is the last part of stanza three in Lutheran service book, with what rapture gaze we on those glorious scars. So it is, it is the scars of Jesus that we see, seeing him as the crucified, the one who suffered, that is what brings us this rapture, this great joy, and in Hebrews 2, gives us endurance for our sufferings now. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So with that, that's a good place to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Zelwyn Heidi this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. 
LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 5th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were talking about this walking by faith, not by sight. Although, according to the eyes of this world, we can't see everything in subjection to Jesus. The eyes of faith see that, in fact, that is true. And Jesus is the one who has been crucified for us. He has tasted death. And the way that the writer of Hebrews puts that especially is that by the grace of God, he has tasted death for everyone. Help us into that particular phrase at the end of verse 9. Yeah, the fact that he has tasted death in that sense means that even if we must taste death too, I mean, Jesus already has has done it, right? I mean, he is... He is died for us. He has died to take away our sins. Um, he is not, as Hebrews will later go on to say, one who doesn't know what it means to suffer, because he has actually done all of these things. He has tasted suffering. He has tasted death. He is a high priest who can sympathize with our condition, with what we have to go through. So for that reason, we can trust in him and know that he has overcome all things and that he he knows what we're going through, right? Yeah. Is there maybe some some baptismal overtone there in that verse? I'm thinking about especially Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks about being crucified and buried and raised with Christ in baptism. So here in Hebrews 2, he's tasted death on for everyone, so that when we're baptized, not only do we taste in his death, but we also taste in his resurrection. I think you could make that connection. Um, <laughs> that was maybe a lot of moves all at once, but I think you see where I'm going, right? It, it's 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 certainly a parallel idea, um, and I think you could you know talk about them in the same breath, kind of a thing. I don't know if I would specifically say that you could that you'd read it out of this, but that's just me. So sure, I, mean, I guess maybe what I'm thinking is is Jesus in his incarnation has gone into suffering; he's tasted our sufferings, so that right. when we are baptized, then into him we taste not only his sufferings, but we also experience all the way into his resurrection. Yeah, the way I've sometimes explained it has been, uh, whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. Yeah. You know, this, yeah. if he, he's died, we will die, we die with him, but he's also risen, so we rise with him. That, that sort of thing. To be in Christ is to be like him in all things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and so, I mean, according to his incarnation, then, that's how he's tasted these things along with us, mm-hmm. and then it's in our baptism that we taste these things along with him, and they become, again, because of his suffering for us, then when we are baptized into him, they become for our salvation. Yep, yep, I see where you're going. Okay, <laughs> good. I'm glad, I'm glad I'm not too crazy. So, <laughs> verse, verse 10, verse 10 then, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There is a lot to unpack, I think, in that verse, Pastor Heidi. Help us out. Yeah, we're never going to get to the end of this chapter. (laughs) Sure we will. (laughs) We have to. There's really good stuff at the end. Oh, I know. Well, it's all good. Like I said, it's a good book. But 
Okay, so the idea is that he, by whom, for whom and by whom all things exist, I would argue is referring to the Father here. You know, that makes sense to me. To God. And in bringing many sons to glory, in that sense, in, in other words, that he's bringing many to faith, he is calling many to himself. Okay? So that's kind of the, the, the second step here. Should make the founder of their salvation, in other words, Jesus, the one who has actually given us the way to the Father, the one who's actually established the way that we can be saved, but he is made perfect through suffering. And that's kind of, again, one of the main points of Hebrews here, the things that, he's, that we're really trying to drive home. All of these things happen, the glory of Christ, the superiority of Christ, you know, all these things that he has done come through suffering. And that's exactly why I think it's such a scandal to those who are hearing, or maybe even to us, because to us, suffering does not seem to be superior, right? Mm -hmm. Suffering seems to be something you're undergoing, something that's pretty miserable, something that's pretty wretched. And who had a more wretched death than Jesus? But in this case, it is exactly his suffering which has made him superior even to the angels. And that's what that's what makes him then the as the ESV translates it the founder mm -hmm. of their salvation. You, I think you were as you were describing that you were attaching it to the thought that Jesus is the one who's. Well, the way I've heard this turn of phrase ex explained is that he's the trailblazer. He's the pioneer. He's the first one to go this way, and it, he's gone that way through suffering. That yeah. makes him the the founder, the pioneer of our salvation. Yeah, I think I think the word could be. You know, it could also be translated, like you said, the, the one who goes before, the one who goes first. Um, so it is this idea that because he is the one who, you know, descended, but also ascended, uh, it shows that because he has gone first, because he is the trailblazer, if you will, uh, that is what makes him the beginning of all of these things, the founder, the one who's established it. And we are, right. we are following after him. Right, so that would be the, the phrase, and I know it comes before in the verse, but the idea of, of bringing many sons to glory. Mm -hmm. So the way that the Father is going to bring many sons to glory is by taking his only begotten son, and again, that, that he's the son, that goes back to Hebrews chapter 1, by making his only begotten son, sending him through suffering into death, this is the way then that God is going to bring us as well as his sons into glory. Well, Jesus says clearly in the Gospel of John, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, it's, it's the same idea, just in a much more poetic way of expressing it. Well, and I think maybe what, what this verse from Hebrews 2 brings out, that sometimes we miss there in John 14, we hear John 14 in often very exclusive terms, like the way's closed and you've got to go through Jesus or else, which uh, that's certainly there. But, but that's a good thing, because that means that because Jesus is the way, that means you get to come along too. He mm -hmm. is bringing you with him into mm -hmm. this. He's, it's not, you know, so yes, it's exclusive. He's the only way, but he wants to bring you this way. And that's why he is the way, is to bring you there. I think it, it helps you to see the, if I can say it this way, the gospel aspect of, of what he said there in John 14, that sometimes we maybe color with not quite the fullness that we should. 
Well, and like you said, I mean, the, the point is still there. I mean, no one comes to the Father except through yeah. me. There is an exclusivity to it, and I think that does need to be emphasized, especially in our day and age. Absolutely. But, but like you said, the fact that he is the way means that he is the way to life. He is the way to the Father. He is the one who brings us there. And I mean, that's, that is something that we definitely want to hold on to as well. Yes, yes. Now, when uh, there's maybe uh, something that we should clarify here, because this is one of the places in Hebrews where it might make some Christians scratch their heads, where it says that the Father should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. When it talks about making him perfect, mm. what, is, what does that mean? Well, what it, what it means that the, that the Father is making Jesus perfect through suffering is not that he isn't perfect in terms of his, how do you want to say, his divine side, you know, he is, I mean, he is the Son, he is the Eternal Son, he is God, that sort of thing. But when it talks about his being made perfect in terms of his, I mean, in terms of his humiliation, right, in terms of the fact that he became man, there isn't a sense in which he uh, is is being completed. There is a sense, in a sense in which he is being filled out. I mean, you get hints of this, for example, in the Gospels, where it talks about Jesus growing in wisdom and in stature, um, you get this idea that his work is not yet complete, his hour has not yet come, but once he is crucified, once he, is, once he has died, in that sense, it is now full. The fullness is now there. He has fulfilled what he has come to do, and in that sense, he is perfect. He is made perfect through his suffering. Does that make sense? It does, and I think it, to maybe say it in a slightly different way, or to catch a different angle, he, it's not talking about being made perfect in the sense of sinlessness or moral perfection. Jesus right. is the sinless Son of God, the God-man. He's, he's sinless in his divinity and his humanity his whole time. I mean, that's, that's who he right. is. But rather, I think the word you use, uh, complete, is maybe a better way to think about this, or fulfilled that he's, he's made perfect through suffering in the sense that he did everything that was necessary to be the Savior that sinners need. So the, the language that I was thinking about is the way Jesus speaks about, say, for example, in Matthew 16 and in other places, that the Son of Man must suffer, die, rise, or it's necessary. That's the idea of being made perfect. The Father... Let or led Jesus along the way so that mm. everything that was necessary for your salvation has been accomplished, and therefore he is the complete, the perfect Savior, not in the sense of sinlessness. He is sinless, but in the sense of he's just the one you need. Right, and he's completed everything, he has done everything, and then it, is the main, it is finished. And the, the main emphasis, especially here, is that it is only through his suffering yes. that this perfection has come. That's right. Yeah, he would not be this perfect Savior, this complete Savior, apart from his suffering particularly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. That's very good, Pastor Heidi. So continuing then into verse 11, so that we do get to that great stuff at the end of the chapter. <laughs> For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he launches into several Old Testament citations. Help us into the, the lead up and then the Old Testament citations. So, yeah, so the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all come from the same source, namely Jesus. You know, he is the... <laughs> well, I, I suppose 
or would you say he who sanctifies maybe the source is is the father here i mean maybe that's the way to look at I this think there's there's a couple of i suppose there's a couple he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source I, you could you could say adam even i mean they they all are, are human they're they're all human beings maybe i think dr kleinig lists about four different possibilities as to what that one source <laughs> might be well, but the point is, I think ultimately, let's let's maybe if they're we don't want to get hung up on the stars, they're all together, and the fact, and for that reason, uh, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then, in fact, the the whole point of his citations, which we'll get to, is to emphasize why they can be called brothers, why we are called brothers with Christ, not and and not just sons, right? Um, the, the, I mean, we are all sons of God in that sense because of what Christ has done for us. But because of that, our elder brother, Jesus, has made us brothers in Christ. I mean, it, it is the sense that we are, we're not only connected to the Father in this way, but we are, also, we are also all united as brothers. We are also joined together as one in that way as well. So it's kind of, kind of unpacking both of those metaphors to talk about our relationship to God, both as being sons as well as brothers, right? Yeah, yeah. So just to, because I, I, I grabbed the commentary that Dr. Kleinig wrote real quick, okay. when it comes to this one source, he suggests it could be common or, origin as God creatures who sh, God's creatures who share the same humanity, so that'd be one blood, he says. Could okay. be common kinship as sons of God, one father. Could be common human ancestor, Adam, one forefather, or a common spiritual ancestor, Abraham, he suggests they're all possible and, and then says perhaps because it recognizes that they're all human brothers, that it's the common human ancestor, Adam, that is in view most. But again, I think the way you explained it, that we're, we're in this together with Jesus as his brothers, that's the key point. So right. he emphasizes that with a couple of Old Testament citations in verses 12 and 13. Take us into that. Yeah, so the first one that he quotes in verse 12 is uh, Psalm 22, particularly verse, verse 22. Um, of course, Psalm 22 is that great uh, psalm talking about, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that's, that's that whole thing. But again, to put it in a real nutshell here, the whole point of that is that even in the midst of suffering, the one who is calling on God still trusts in him, still finds his hope in him, even, even as he suffers all of these things. And for that reason, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Now, that's especially fitting because Jesus himself quotes the words of this psalm as he's suffering on the cross. Yeah. Um, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's a very explicit application of this psalm to Jesus himself, not only in the book of Hebrews. And for that reason, um, Jesus is the one telling of your name, that is the name of the Father, to my brothers, that is to those who are being saved. You know, he is singing praise in the midst of the congregation. Yeah. Now, what about the next one? I will put my trust in him. That sounds like it could come from any number of places in the Old Testament. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, which one do you want to pick <laughs> kind of a thing? I, I think you could do Psalm 18 would be a good one. Uh, Psalm 18, verse 2, has something to that effect. You know, so is this I mean, the one I'm taking refuge in? I'll put my trust in him, that sort of thing. And I, I think, honestly, I think the point here is, again, just emphasizing that we're 
you know, that we are putting trust in the Father, that we are looking to him as the one who delivers, as the one who brings us to glory through Jesus, that sort of thing. I mean, do you have a, a different place you might want to pull that from, or...? No, no, I think I think that's good. What about the next one, though? Behold, I and the children God has given me. Yeah, this I'm pretty sure this is quoting from Isaiah, isn't it? Yeah, it looks like Isaiah chapter 8, from what the, the footnote that I see, or the cross-reference reads. Yeah, and the, the idea with uh, I and the children who have given me, uh, whom the Lord has given me, uh, how do we want to take this here? The, the, the point of the, the quote, of course, is... I and the children, right? right? So that I, I, I suppose in that sense, would be Christ again, and the children, I mean, changing the metaphor back into sons kind of thing, that God the Father has given me. I mean, that's that's the point of why it's here in Hebrews. Um, but how, how would you unpack it in the, the original context well, of Isaiah? Yeah. No, and that's that's where I, I think I think for our purposes today, because because I do want to get to the next the next verses, I think the main thing to, to notice is that I and the children God has given me. The mm-hmm. the concept of brothers is what's key. And then even the way then that the the Hebrews writer and maybe a preacher, this is a good move for a preacher, he takes that word children mm-hmm. and he makes use of it as he moves forward. So that's that's kind of where I would like us to to continue our conversation because we've got about nine minutes, and I want to get into these last couple verses because they right. are so rich. So take us into verse fourteen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And we'll go into verse fifteen and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Go ahead. Yeah, there's nothing to unpack in that one, right? Help us out. <laughs> well, okay, so, yeah, like he said, he, he makes a, a rhetorical move here, a preacher move, as I think you put it, um, using the word children as a way of moving on to his next thought. But it's also still kind of expanding what on what he said previously. You know, because we are united in flesh and blood with Christ, uh, for that reason, he has actually suffered the very same things that we suffer, um, that he has tasted death, that he has tasted all of this suffering. But the whole purpose of that suffering, the whole reason why he's enduring the same things that we do, or will have to, is so that he might destroy the power of the devil. Um, well, I suppose you can say even destroy the devil, period. I mean, that's kind of how it reads here. But right. um, yeah. And also deliver those who were enslaved through the fear of death. And I suppose the slavery there would be referring to slavery to the devil, right? And slavery to sin, slavery to evil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that language reminds me of of the way Jesus speaks in the Gospels about binding the strong man and plundering his goods. Mm -hmm. So by his death, Jesus has destroyed the devil, and he has delivered you and me, sinners, from slavery to the devil. And he's, he's done this, not for angels, verse 16, it's not angels that he helps, we're back to that, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, in this context, what do you think that, what does the offspring of Abraham refer to? Well, offspring of Abraham would have to be those who are walking by faith, right? I mean, that's that's the promised children of offspring, that God will raise up those who are like him in believing as well. I mean, that's that's Paul's point in the book of Romans, Romans 4, if I remember correctly. 
yeah. you know, that anyone who believes in Jesus is a son of Abraham without, yeah. without exception. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so the offspring of Abraham, not only those who are physically descended from Abraham, but those who share the faith of Abraham, they receive this this help. But especially then also that it's not the angels. He is he's right. shared in the flesh and blood of humanity so that he helps humanity through faith, through the faith that Abraham had. And so then, therefore, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect— so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he's got to be like his brothers so that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. We get some some Old Testament language there. How does that factor into what's being said? Well, the, the and this is something he will expand on at much greater length later on in the book of Hebrews, so you'll probably have to just you know unpack it more there. But this idea. Five minutes, Pastor Heidi. In five minutes. <laughs> yeah, you got five minutes. I'm just okay. letting you know you got some some time to play with here. All right. Well, I mean, the, the idea is is that by being the high priest, he is the one who is offering up the sacrifice. He is offering up. Uh, we'll talk about propitiation a little bit here in just a minute, but he is offering up these things to the Father as a way of covering over our sins, and the fact that. He is like us in every way, shows that he is, I mean, he's like the, the old high priest, right? The one who was chosen from among the brothers. But in this sense, he is the greater one because he is going to offer up an eternal sacrifice, which again is one of the main points of the book of Hebrews. Um, right. But it's this whole point is that because he is like us, he is able to do this. And, uh, and that's what makes him superior to the angels. Sure, and that's what makes him, in this case, merciful and faithful as well. Particularly that aspect of, of mercy, I think, is going to come through in verse 18. Mm -hmm. uh, but before, and as, as you said, this thought, hold on to it, because it will come up later in the book of Hebrews as to how Jesus is, in fact, greater than the high priests of the Old Testament. Right. What about this, this term, making propitiation for the sins of the people? Right. The, the ESV likes the term propitiation. It's one that I don't think it's used very often in, in everyday English outside of the scriptures. So what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, what propitiation means or to make propitiation is basically something that you give to someone else so that they're no longer angry. Um, and usually that's used in terms of God, right? That something is given to him, something is sacrificed to him so that he is no longer angry with us. And of course, in New Testament terms and biblical terms, that sacrifice what is given to him is the blood of christ is the fact that he has given himself so that god the father is no longer angry with us so that his wrath has been stilled um and and the the guilt of our sins has been taken away so yeah i know propitiation is not a word that we use a lot but it is a very rich word when we understand what it actually means yeah, that's right. That's right. So he's and he's making again propitiation for the sins of the people. It's not the mm -hmm. angels that he's helping. He's helping his brothers, those whom with whom he shares this flesh and blood. He's become like us in every respect. And I suppose this is later in Hebrews where he he clarifies that so we are sure. He's made like us in every respect, but he doesn't share in our sinful nature. Right. Exactly. Right. And yeah. because and, he and is... he'll go ahead. Well, I think he makes that clear in, in chapter 4, if I remember rightly. He says that later. He says he's without sin. So he's like us right. in every respect, but he's without sin. 
And then in verse 18, what, what does this mean? What's the comfort? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Help us into this last verse, Pastor Heidi. Well, yeah, I mean, Jesus was himself tempted. I mean, he endured the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. He, I'm sure he was tempted in other situations, too. And because of that, he knows exactly what it means to be tempted. He's able to sympathize with us. And for that reason, he knows exactly what we need in order to resist such, such temptation. Um, it is, we have a God who knows our weakness, who knows what it means to be in our situation, and he can do exactly what needs to be done in order to help us get through that situation. I mean, he is, he is sympathetic. He is all-knowing. He is merciful in that way. Mm. With about a minute left, Pastor Heidi, we've talked about Jesus and his incarnation, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension. Help us to wrap all these things up from Hebrews chapter 2 and give us the comfort that's ours to know Jesus as our merciful high priest. Yeah, the, the great thing about Hebrews is, again, the emphasizing how Jesus is the one who has who is greater than all things, right? That he is the one who has suffered for us, he is the one who has endured all of these things for us. He is the one who has died for us. He is the one who has been glorified through that suffering. But what that means for us as Christians in the midst of our own suffering is that we are suffering with Christ and we are being made like him in every way. And so we don't have to suffer without hope or to think that it's all pointless because honestly, Jesus has been there and he is going to bring us through to a glory which is far greater than anything that we can imagine. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews chapter 2, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.